Welcome back, everybody, to So It's Cancer, the podcast dedicated to being a how-to manual for cancer patients and their friends and families. Each month, we work through different elements of the overall problem, from soup to nuts. Beginning at the beginning, such as the basics of what cancer is, who may be at risk, who is involved in the treatments, why treatments differ so much from one cancer to another, or even within the same type of cancer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be employed for specific clinical decision-making. For any such efforts, please communicate directly with your personal physician. Today, everybody, we're welcoming back our usuals, uh, Peter Slagle and Michael Reardon. Good evening. And Charlie Reinhardt, our urologist. Good evening. Today, we're going to take on prostate cancer. And Peter, I'm going to lead off with you. Yeah. So prostate cancer is one of the leading causes of death uh, for men. It's also one of the leading diagnoses. And there's uh, much to be learned about prostate cancer, both in terms of the lay public and the specialists who are involved in treatment. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying that the population that's uh, affected parallels women with breast cancer, that we're roughly seeing about the same number of breast cancer uh, patients as prostate cancer patients, obviously, according to their gender, although men will get uh, breast cancer, but not the vice versa. Um, it's also interesting to know that the death rate from prostate cancer closely matches that with breast cancer. And in fact, for every 10 people, men diagnosed with prostate cancer, only about one, maybe two will die from their disease. So there's lots and lots of men being treated, being cured, or living with cancer, but only a small uh, amount of those who actually succumb to the disease ultimately. On the other hand, it is a, a big source of, of pain and suffering. It's a big source of anxiety. It's, it can change your life overnight. And with that, we'll jump right into uh, talking specifically about prostate cancer and who it affects. Charlie, you're kind of the, the specialist in terms of being in the office, and we'd like to hear kind of your perspective roughly on the demographics that you see walking into the office with prostate cancer, how they're offered to see a urologist regarding possible prostate cancer, and what uh, typically happens with their first visit when they have, say, an elevated PSA or have uh, urinary problems and so forth. Well, I, I'd like to jump in with a quick question. Yeah. On, on behalf of the audience, what is a prostate? Yeah, what's a PSA? Questions come. Well, that's 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 a good place to start, Paul. So, uh, so the prostate is a it's an organ of uh, sexual function that is part of the male sexual general sexual process. So, what the prostate does is it uh, essentially creates enzymes. Those are chemicals that allow for kind of the semen to live within the sperm and uh, to be viable for fertilization uh, within the within the woman. So that's what its function is uh, for men of uh, fertile age. But, you know, kind of after that, that age of those fertile years, it doesn't really serve much of a purpose, uh, except to cause cause issues amongst men. So yeah, Michael, going to your question, what is PSA? That's a good question. So PSA stands for prostate specific antigen. So that's a that's one of these specific antigens or one of these specific enzymes that are made in the prostate that are again used to kind of prepare the the sperm and and make the environment viable for sperm. And this enzyme is made by every prostate. Every man has some level of PSA um, in their bloodstream. 
So it's, it's a blood test. And what we use it for, uh, what the medical field uses it for, a, a screener for prostate cancer. So what we have found that, yes, every prostate makes uh, PSA and every man has PSA in the bloodstream. Uh, but those that those men that do have prostate cancer, we find that their, their PSA levels uh, will rise. Um, and so that's what we use to screen men as we screen for prostate cancer. So I guess that gets us back to the question is, how does someone end up in my office being evaluated for prostate cancer? And, and typically that is done, that starts out at the primary care uh, level. So primary care physicians uh, will draw a PSA. There's, there's kind of certain criteria for when, uh, you know, who and, and when your PSA is drawn. And if, is that just a blood it test? Is. It is a blood test. And so if that comes back elevated, usually that, re, you know, we'll, we'll end up with a referral to a urologist and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so that's, that's essentially a PSA and that's how someone gets uh, referred to urology. Yeah. And, and, and from a- mo- most prostate cancers aren't something that people sense. It's just they go to their doctor, they get a blood test and the test flags it. It's, most of the time, is, am I correct that they're not like, hey, I've got this symptom and then you investigate that symptom and discover they have prostate cancer. Most of the time it's discovered these days with the blood test. Is that correct? Yeah, I will add that we used to recommend digital rectal exams in the primary care office, and that's kind of gone by the wayside. So in a perfect world, you get a PSA, you're screened from age 50 to 70. If it's high, then you go see your urologist and say, yep, unfortunately, you have prostate cancer, let's cure you. Unfortunately, there's a ton of gray zone between being normal and having prostate cancer. And that's probably what causes Charlie uh, nine out of 10 of his headaches in terms of who really needs to be treated and who doesn't, who needs to go through all these tests and who doesn't. Um, The PSA design is such that if it's elevated, it signifies that you have prostate cancer. But in many cases, uh, elevated PSA just may indicate that you have some sort of infection. You may have some stone disease in your prostate or another benign condition. Yet it it raises red flags, anxiety, diagnostic tests, uncertainty, and expense. Uh, Peter or Charlie, what what is elevated? Uh, You know, when, when you're looking at it, so I know my, my dad had it, and his numbers were considered low, but still within a range to be concerned about. And when he went for treatment, he was sitting in the waiting room with another gentleman, and they were, as men will do, they were comparing test uh, result sizes. And um, <laughs> uh, and the other guy was like, you know, three or four times greater score than my dad. Well, so what, what does that mean to have an elevated uh, PSA? And what are the numbers? Yeah, so I, there's really not any, I mean, part of the problem with PSA, there's not any real cutoff for what is an elevated PSA. Uh, sometimes it, it kind of, it can, it can be if your age can play a big factor in what, a, you know, what can be considered an elevated PSA. If, if I see a, a PSA, let's say four, that's kind of a, a standard lab definition of above four is considered elevated. If I see a PSA of three in a 45-year-old male, that's going to raise a lot more uh, flags than if I say see a three in a seventy-five-year-old male. So as as men age, we know their PSA, as long as well as their prostate in size, will get bigger. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with kind of um, the age of the individual, if they have any family history of prostate cancer, or things things like that. Um, and as to another 
delicate question. It was the first time that I had a, a blood test uh, in many years, having not been to the doctor in a while. And they said, oh, we'll do a full workup and we'll take blood. And they said, well, we're a little concerned. Your your PSA level is, is a little bit high. I think it was three something or whatever. I don't really remember the number. Uh, but then they said, wait, have you ejaculated recently? And I said, well, that's kind of a personal question, Doc. Yeah. But I guess, and you can tell me if this is true or not, <laughs> that, that they basically then said, well, you sh- you shouldn't ejaculate within five days of your. Uh, you know, this is just my my. Uh, well, how are how are you going to get tested, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I think they they read my baseline at that point in time. But is is that a is, is that something that that we should share with people? Is that when they're going just to their you know their their general practitioner that they should try to refrain from any sexual activity for I think they said five days or or so. Um, so that it doesn't skew the test. Is that a real thing or, or was I just being April fooled? Nobody's got one. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, that, that is a real thing uh, to a degree. I mean, we say, you know, this, the PSA can be artificially or it can be elevated for a number of reasons. Again, you know, prostate cancer is one of those, but um, infection can cause an elevation of the PSA, any kind of manipulation of that area. So someone goes, you know, instead of maybe ejaculating or some type of intercourse, say you were on your Peloton, you know, and did a big Peloton ride and a lot of pressure on that, that area, you can cause that to artificially um, go up. Yeah. You know, even that we had mentioned the digital rectal exam, you know, the, the thought is that you shouldn't get a PSA immediately after getting your prostate examined, uh, which is through the rectum, because that can cause it to kind of transiently go up in the bloodstream. So, yeah, I mean, there is some factor. And, and typically, I will not make any decisions based on a single PSA number. I would, you know, I would repeat that PSA to see if it stays elevated or maybe it was something that caused it to just go up for a, a transient period of time. Well, would you recommend, you know, if I know that I've got a doctor's appointment coming up and I'm going to have this blood test done, that I should not ride a bike, I should not engage in sexual activity, I should not, you know, what are the other should nots? Yeah, I would say I would say seventy two hours. Yeah, I would I would I would stay off of yeah stay off of uh, some kind of cycling any kind of pressure on that area we call the perineum. That's kind of the area on the underside. Intercourse one that we say seventy two hours. So yeah, I think if if you're elevated and you're going uh, and you're having you're having your PSA check, yeah, I would say you avoid those things for three days. Does it, you'd like to avoid that biopsy. Yes. So what, what happens is if your PSA is elevated, let's say two times in a row and you go see Charlie, he might biopsy it, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's the PSA is a screener, right? So it's a screener. And so like any screening test, you know, the, it's meant to, identify people that are at risk for having the disease. So PSA is not diagnostic of prostate cancer. Like we said, there's a lot of things that can raise the PSA. And so what we need to do is the next step likely is to get a biopsy. And so a biopsy we do, typically we do in the office, in the urology office, unless there's a reason to do it under some type of sedation. But it is a, it's a, a procedure where um, we have to take samples of the prostate, the access to the prostate. It's it sits right at the uh, right at the rectum, right at the anus and the rectum. So it's a probe into the uh, rectum, and we sample the, bi- the prostate 
in that manner. So not necessarily a comfortable procedure. There are not only is it uncomfortable for guys, but there are some risks, uh, certainly some risk of infection after a prostate biopsy. So you would want to avoid doing unnecessary biopsies. And that's, that's part of the issue that we've seen with kind of wide-scale screening of, uh, of prostate cancer. I will mention the concept of shared decision making. That's a, a big deal in medicine these days. It means that there needs to be a conversation in terms of undergoing any kind of testing, a, a, a consent, if you will, that there's good, bad, and ugly with PSA screening. Uh, in fact, some of the major medical boards will give it a C grade, just like a report card saying, you know, this PSA screening isn't doing all that much. The The good news on the PSA screening is since we've been doing it 20 years ago, there's been almost a decrease of 50% in the chance of a male in the United States dying from prostate cancer, which is huge. The the That sort of parallels mammograms uh, and breast Probably cancer, not it? as good. It matters how you look at the literature and you read the studies. So I look at it that as a positive, say, since we've been doing PSA screening, the number of people dying has decreased a bit. And since COVID came around and the PSA testing has kind of come off line as people are triaging, say, there's other things to do. We're seeing the number of people with really advanced prostate cancer increasing in the office from someone who sees advanced disease involving the bones and the lymph nodes and all the bad stuff you hear about. So the, the good of, of overall that we're probably saving lives with doing screening, the bad is that it's expensive that people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer go down these roads that they don't want to go in terms of having sexual organs operated on, complications, anxiety, and so forth. Uh, we call that over-treatment and saying, you know, some of these people may have lived just fine without having someone do all these interventions on them that, that may not have cured them in town or uh, may be unnecessary, that we may have caught a disease that was going very, very slowly. We don't understand all these things. Uh, when Charlie does his biopsy, he tries to figure out how fast the cancer is going. We have something called Gleason score. You can look at PSA velocity. There's molecular study, blah, blah, blah. Some fancy stuff. So he can give you a statistic, but in the end, all he can give you is a number, say, you know, I think it's this likely it's going to be cancer, and this is what we're going to have to do to get rid of it. The ugly is that we just miss a whole bunch of prostate cancers by relying exclusively on the, the PSA test. Uh, obviously, men who have urinary problems, it's pretty ubiquitous. Once you hit your 50th birthday, you're waking up once, twice to go to the bathroom at night. And as you get older, it just increases. Is that normal? Is that from cancer? What's going on? Um, but the, the overall idea is that you need to share with your primary care who's ordering these PSA tests why you want to do this. And you have to understand that there may be consequences doing them that result in you being overdiagnosed or overtreated or missing um, something that we were originally trying to find out. So I think what you're saying is, let's say Mike is going to go to the doctor. He's turning 50. Okay. <laughs> Again, how many so times have you turned now. 50, Mike? <laughs> All right. So he's turning 50. He's going to the doctor. 
And the doctor says, hey, do you want a PSA test? How and much Mike's does that gonna cost? Say, yeah. <laughs> Let's say it's a it's, yeah. it's special deal for you today, Mike. It's free. But it's not free. Nothing's free because the PSA test could, if it flags positive, it when it flags positive, it might be accurate. It might be inaccurate, meaning... Like, let's say he was just on the Peloton. It's going to be falsely elevated. Let's say, you know, he didn't do anything for 72 hours. It's going to be accurate. But even if it's accurate, it's from an infection. It's from prostatitis, which is something that people get or whatnot. And we start going down the, it might be cancer pathway with biopsies, which are painful and expensive, and you can get an infection or MRI scanners, which are super expensive. And it's not cancer. So that one little test sort of brought on a lot of other treatments and expenses that had we never even looked. Is there a happy middle okay. somewhere in there? You, you- I, let, let me interrupt for one second. So Michael being age 50, that if we do see a prostate cancer, the, the problem would be over treatment that we're really looking for something that may potentially be life-threatening because of how common it is, how many people die, the screening makes sense. The question is, when you start getting older, is it really going to be effective? Are, are you going to be diagnosing a very slow prostate cancer? There's a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of variability in how these prostate cancers grow and, and cause problems. Are you going to be capturing that at age 70? And, and, and just to interrupt here, heterogeneity for, for the listening audience would mean that let's say you have 100 people with prostate cancer. They don't all share the same course. Out of that hundred people, some of them, half of them are going to just have a very slow growing prostate cancer that moves so slowly, it's hardly a problem. And out of the other half, that'll break into, let's say, three more groups, intermediate, high, and very high risk. And the very high risk is a group of people who it's moving super fast. The intermediate and the high are less than that. And that's where the whole treatment plan starts to become effective. For the low risk, for let's say that half of those people, you can treat with observation or radiation or surgery, and it all ends up being pretty much the same except the surgery and radiation has more side effects. Uh, I'd like to answer that question. I believe number one is when you see a urologist and they do the prostate biopsy, if they have to do that, that's a fairly black and white. Do you have cancer or don't, or do you not? There are some gray cases, but for the vast majority of people, the, the biopsy is black and white. Once you get to that point, then we can do the risk stratification in terms of how fast, how aggressive we think this cancer is, what are the chances that we can cure it or we can't, and uh, figuring out the stage and so forth. So the first really question, pivoting from an elevated PSA and having to go to the urologist office is, do you have prostate cancer or don't you? Well, then I have have a question, and and it's going to be a tough one to you doctors, Uh, seriously, because... If I am told that I have cancer, I, I, I wanted, okay, let's go. Let's, let's take care of this. Let's get this out early because everything I've heard says take care of it early. And is there a risk uh, of you saying, you know, no, let's, let's just observe, let's wait. 
Um, is there potentially a tendency for some doctors to say, okay, yeah, let's, let's just go ahead and move ahead because I'm not going to get in any trouble for treating. Whereas I might get in some trouble uh, and be sued if uh, I don't treat and it advances rapidly. Is that a fair thing to say that there might be some doctors that would take me by the hand when I'm anxious and saying, let's treat it. Now I, I was going to answer. So, my, so Mike, that's a great question. And, you know, I get that a lot clinic. There's pretty, there's pretty good research, pretty good guidelines about how we treat cancer. Maybe that's a, that's kind of a, maybe a good thing to talk about now is how do we treat prostate cancer? What are the treatment options? And, and Paul, Paul, you mentioned the heterogeneity of, prostate cancer and that's actually that's very important to how we how we risk stratify and how we treat patients so if someone is in kind of that low risk the treatment options are, are probably different than someone's in the high risk so if, if we start in the low risk guys the treatment options are really kind of one of four i would say you can be you can give local kind of local therapy so that's surgery radiation those are kind of two options um, and then we can do something called watchful waiting, which was essentially we're not going to treat treat the cancer. We're just going to, it's considered low risk. It's slow growing. Maybe they have other medical issues at the time. You know, maybe they have severe heart disease or emphysema or something like that. And we're not going to treat this, this low risk prostate cancer. And then the other treatment option is what we call active surveillance. And, and I think this is kind of getting to your question, Mike, is that active surveillance is a pretty Define process in terms of how we follow that individual to decide if and when that prostate cancer has advanced or reached a stage where we need to treat it with surgery or radiation or something like that. And so those those are pretty well defined, and it's the data is pretty clear that uh, men that have low risk prostate cancer, even some intermediate level uh, risk of prostate cancer that go on to active surveillance do just as well as guys that are treated with radiation or surgery. So we have, we have good data to back that up. And so I think, I think physicians are, are protected in order you know, to offer that treatment based on kind of the guidelines that we have out in, in the, the data that supports that. Charlie, if I, if I can summarize it, based on a couple of factors that you measure, and I think it comes in in something called like the CAPRA score or, or whatever. And it's a combination of the PSA score and the biopsy and the person's age and maybe one or two other factors. You're going to categorize each individual patient into a risk level. And so for these 50 people, you'll say based on your age, the PSA score you have, the biopsy result you have, you know, whatever, you're low risk. And if you're low risk, that means we can just watch you. We're going to have to watch you. We can't forget about you, but you don't have to go get some sort of procedure. Then to the other 50 people, you're going to say, you guys aren't quite as low risk. You're intermediate, high, or very high risk based on these details. And based on that, we're going to rec recommend either surgery or radiation or the two of them together or hormonal therapy or something like that. Is that a fair way to summarize? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a good summary of it, Paul. 
can, can I interject? May I interject? And so, Mike, does the that... prostate cancer, we talked oh, about yeah. heterogeneity. There are cancers that grow very slowly. And what I mean by that is the fingers extend, grow slowly. The chance of it breaking off, spreading, metastasizing is very low. On the other hand, you have very aggressive cancers. I kind of liken it to different uh, dog uh, species. You have some that are chihuahuas that they don't do a whole lot, but then there's Rottweilers and they can take a big bite. They can be very aggressive. So the aggressive cancers have much more of a, a, a tendency to be cancer-like, i.e. fingers extending beyond where they're supposed to be, uh, breaking off, getting into the bloodstream, going to lymph nodes, going to bones, and, and so forth. So essentially, when we're doing risk stratification, we're in our brain saying, what is the chance of this prostate cancer getting out of the prostate and causing problems? No one dies from prostate cancer in the prostate. It's when it gets out of the prostate, winds up in the bones, winds up in the organs, winds up in lymph nodes that you wind up having major problems. Not to say that as the cancer grows in the prostate, it can't block off your urination. It can't harm some of the nerves that innervate uh, the, the reproductive organ, the penis, and, and can get erectile dysfunction. But the, the fact is, is that it's the metastatic disease that that is really the, the vital thing that the urologist is trying to prevent, prevent the cancer from spreading beyond the, where it started from. Uh, I'm going to flip it back to the, the other side of my question then, which was you know harsh on you doctors, and now it's going to be harsh on, on we patients. What do you do when you have somebody who is in kind of a panic mode that says, uh-uh, I want this out of me. I don't, I don't want to lose my sexual function. I, I don't want to die. Let's just go, go, go. And your advice would normally be, well, let's, let's take a slow uh, surveillance approach to this. Have you had to kind of walk people down or have you had to, you know, go with what they want or, or refer them to somebody else because you didn't want to treat that? Well, it sounds, Mike, like you got a case of the gimmies. I want all these things. <laughs> so there's something called the trifecta, which is you treat the cancer, you preserve the ability to maintain urinary continence, and you preserve mm -hmm. sexual function. But what if I'm panicking? That's the trifecta. And Charlie, and, and I don't really need a lot of treatment right it? now, but I'm, I'm in panic mode, right? And, and I'm insisting on more aggressive treatment, right? Does, does that happen? Or am I just making up stories? Well, it happens to me in other diseases. I'll ask Charlie. Let's see what he says. No, it certainly happens. I mean, I, there, I see men that have, again, that have, it's, we are, there's pretty clear definitions for our guidelines of what's considered very low risk, low risk, intermediate risk, high risk, very high risk. I see a lot of guys with very low risk and the guidelines are clear that the preferred treatment is active surveillance, meaning not to do some type of focal uh, surgery or radiation. Um, and, and a lot of those guys will try, you know, will ask for treatment. And, and they, if after discussion and we talk about the, the risks and benefit of each of these treatment options, if they still, you know, are seeking treatment, you know, that's something that we can pursue. But, you know, I do kind of try to talk them back and go over, go over the data and, and go over, again, the nature of what they're kind of diseases. And, and, and surveillance, Mike, is not something that ends. It's about 50% of guys that go on active surveillance will, at some point in that process, will have some type of treatment, be it surgery or radiation. 
that's not always because the cancer has progressed. Sometimes that's just because of the, the anxiety that active surveillance does cause. I mean, you have to have repeat PSAs, repeat biopsies, MRIs. There's a, it's a process and not every guy, you know, you know, can go through that process and, and they elect to have, um, to move on to treatment. You see that in other cancers as well, you know, sort of like a fatigue where people are constantly going back at new mammograms or new colonoscopies or whatever. And it's exhausting. What would you tell a patient, um, or I guess, let me flip that around. What would I, as a patient, need to hear from you to, to keep me in surveillance mode so that I don't really elect to have surgery or treatments that I don't yet need? What like what? What are the statistics or, or things that that might calm me down? Especially if I'm hearing them now when I'm you know listening to a podcast. What would well, you tell I, I would. I would the two things I would say you know goes back to kind of the risks and benefits. The, you know, the, from the benefits side, I would tell you that um, there is good there is good research, good studies that have been done that have shown that men um, you know with certain of prostate cancer, um, whether they have active surveillance or whether they have some type of treatment out front, that those 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 guys 10, 15 years down the, the road essentially are having similar outcomes in terms of prostate cancer deaths. So you're not at a higher risk of dying from prostate cancer if you do active surveillance up front. So that's the benefit side of it. The risk side, I would tell you, is that these treatments have their side effects, these treatments. This, the side effects of surgery and the side effects of radiation are pretty clear. And that's, you know, the main, you know, kind of the main categories we talk about, which, you know, Paul alluded to is erectile function and continence. That's the ability to control your urine. And surgery and radiation you know, have a detrimental effect on, on both of those. And, and that has a, you know, has, can have a detrimental effect on quality of life after those treatments. So that's what I would explain to the patient and, and let them kind of take that information and make a decision. I imagine it's a lot harder to propose active surveillance when people are younger, but maybe it's easier. I don't know, because they have so much longer to live with the disease if you don't either fry it out with radiation or remove it with surgery. Let's say a person's 55 and they're in the they're in your office. Do you find it easier to propose surveillance or harder for that? No, it's harder. And, and it's, you know, I think some, some men younger, the younger men, we te- tend to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of treatment because of that reason, Paul, because they have a longer life expectancy. You're going to be surveilling that, you know, that cancer for a longer period of time. So, so younger men that have a diagnosis of prostate cancer tend to have, tend to be treated at a higher rate for sure. And Pete, as an oncolo- a medical oncologist, what commonalities do you come across in the patients that you see? You see a lot of prostate cancer patients in the VA, I'm sure. In terms of medical oncology perspective, I believe that the surveillance is a great idea if you don't need it. Now, everybody has different criteria. And and as I discussed before, the shared decision-making in terms of determining what your risk is and how how wise it is to wait, you know, certainly the side effects of incontinence and erectile dysfunction is, is 
a very um, onerous one if you do go through these treatments and, they, and it does occur. Um, once someone is diagnosed with prostate cancer, you do need a very specific plan. Um, I tend to see more of the older population that may be scared of surgery for one reason or another, or not be an ideal candidate because of age or because of other health issues, uh, bad heart, bad lungs, other cancer experiences, and so forth. And with a lot of the the uh, less well uh, men who also can expect to live 10 years or so longer, we, we talk about radiation therapy. And that is, in many cases, fairly close in terms of efficacy to surgery. probably a little bit less. The bad news is you never know that you get it out completely. You never know what exactly was in there. The good news, you never have to undergo the knife. Uh, the good news is that most of the men who go undergo the therapy do fairly well through the treatment, albeit having radiation beams placed through your uh, prostate for a number of weeks is, is never a pleasant thing. Uh, but I, I just want to kind of pitch the idea that radiation treatments play a strong role in the definitive treatment of curable prostate cancer. We don't, don't have a radiation oncologist here, but they have all sorts of of uh, fancy technologies in terms of uh, uh, stereotactic body radio surgery. They have seed implants called brachytherapy. They have the standard external beam radiation they can use. So I could expound on them, but the technology is fairly amazing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Charlie and his urology co uh, uh, colleagues ha have a, quite an arsenal of, of amazing treatments ro with robotic uh, prostatectomy, uh, there's nurse sparing techniques and so forth. So it's kind of an arms race uh, in terms of benefiting the, 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 the patient with prostate cancer. Well, I, I was hoping Charlie could um, walk me through, if I'm given a, a diagnosis and I'm, again, I'm, I'm kind of worried about it and you're telling me, you know, where I'm at, what are the statistical uh, likelihoods of some of those side effects happening? Like how likely am I to, to become incontinent or um, to encounter erectile dysfunction um, from this? And if there are other side effects that we haven't mentioned, like what, what is statistically, is it is it high risk no matter what? Or does it, depend, again, depend on age? Like help, help me understand what I might yeah, be running into. No, so there's a lot of factors. Um, they go into play. So after surgery, you know, pretty much I would counsel, you know, most guys immediately after surgery um, are going to have some level of incontinence and likely some level of erectile dysfunction, you know, from their baseline. Now, how it recovers and, and whether it fully recovers and to what degree often depends on a lot of factors. Sometimes it depends on what their function was before surgery. It can depend on the severity of the disease whether a surgeon could do a nerve sparing, that's what has been kind of alluded to. If the cancer is, appears that it's spreading, you know, locally spreading out, you know, outside or close to the edge of the prostate, then that surgeon is going to have to do kind of a wide resection and, and it's going to have a, a more significant profound impact on, on those, those functions. But yeah, as far as, you know, you know, we kind of quote incontinence, 
you know, somewhere 10 to 15, 10 to 20% of guys will have incontinence, you know, a year after having their prostate removed. You know, there are some therapies to treat the continents, but, but that is, you know, that's, we certainly see that. As far as erectile dysfunction, that, that's even, you know, it, it also kind of depends on how you, not necessarily a black or white thing, function, um, and erections aren't necessarily black or white. So, you know, but, but a good amount, somewhere between around 50% or more guys will have issues or worse erections after surgery than they, you know, than their baseline level. I'm sorry. Was it fifteen uh, or fifty? Nah, fifty or fifty or more. Again, and that—that's those statistics. Depending on the study, are uh, they range broadly, and a lot of it depends on the age of the patient. What, you know, a guy that's fifty-five is going to have better erections after surgery than the guy that's that's seventy. That's just you know a lot of it has to do with age. Uh, but I would say, and back to Peter's point, the we've seen with radiation. Radiation is a is a, certainly a great option for treatment, and it's a great option for treatment. For any patient, um, but certainly as patients get older, you know, and they start, the risks of surgery start getting higher. And we, we send a lot of guys to talk to a radiation oncologist to, to have that option explored. But they also, with radiation, you will see some of the similar, probably less in terms of the incontinence, uh, for sure, and, and some of less of erectile dysfunction after radiation therapy than in surgery. But there are also, there are all other downsides, there are other downsides of radiation. Is there a reason why you would recommend surgery over radiation, or is there a tendency to, to try radiation first before surgery? There, it kind of, sometimes depends on the age. For younger guys, typically, I feel like urologists are a little bit more prone to recommend surgery. An older gentleman, you know, so if I if a guy in his fifties has prostate cancer, you know, I think often we will err on the side of surgery. We're surgeons, so maybe we're biased to, to offering surgery. But there's this idea that if you do surgery, after surgery, you remove the prostate and the prostate cancer, there's a long, you know, you, are, you go through surveillance, you know, essentially years, maybe your, your entire life, you go through some, some level of surveillance, checking PSAs. Um, and if after surgery, if you have some recurrence, you can get radiation. We typically don't do it the other way around. If you have radiation, rarely do we go back and remove the prostate. Okay, so wouldn't I want so Peter more in your court, I think then wouldn't I want radiation as my first option? I think from the lens of a medical oncologist looking at survivorship and and preventing complications, it's somewhat of a toss up and I, I would say that if you're young and have prostate cancer and you want to be cured, I really think that the surgery gives you the best opportunity for that. If you want to prevent complications, you don't want to have a perioperative uh, wound infection, you want to be in the hospital for a couple of days, that the radiation is an excellent option. I, you know, I, I think the, the, the really take-home message is you should talk to both. If you're in a curative position with your prostate cancer, say, hey, you know, we got to deal with this. It, it's never a wrong idea to, to talk to radiation oncologists, say, hey, you know, how would you treat this? Well, why would you do this? What are the complications? How long will it take? What do I have to go through? One uh, small point that is very bothersome with prostate uh, radiation is that you require generally four to five to six months of anti-testosterone therapy, that the part of the radiation involves bringing your testosterone down to zero to have male menopause. And we've found that the 
uh, rate of being cured is much higher in men who've had that. But that is a really tough therapy to, to go through male menopause. Everybody's, when you're 50 and a woman, well, that's just part of life deal with it. For men, it's a total, it's a total game changer. Um, and we could kind of go on um, a whole episode about testosterone and how important that is with, with your, your mojo, your, your, your state of health, your, your happiness level, your activity level, and so forth. So I, I would just probably pitch that if you are going to go through radiation, that you should understand that part of the, the treatment would include anti- testosterone therapy. Do you have many chemotherapies or other biological therapies to bring to bear against prostate cancer? You know, for example, when we were talking about lymphoma, the treatment was essentially all chemotherapy, you know, and you had a few other options such as, um, but it was mostly chemotherapy, wasn't it? Whereas for prostate, the treatment is either observe, meaning just watch and wait and see if they, yeah. if they stay behaving or surgery or radiation, but it doesn't seem like you use too many chemotherapies or other yeah. types of biological therapies. I think for prostate uh, one point to make is that staging of prostate cancer is important. And so when uh, the urologist does the prostate biopsy, you look at the PSA, that we have an algorithm in terms of how likely is it the cancer is all contained within the capsule of the prostate? Is it curable? Is it all contained? Can we just take that out and cure the patient? The opposite side of that is what are the chances that it's outside of that? And if so, what are the options? And so that if we find that there's locally advanced disease, some of the fingers are extending beyond the capsule, urologist cannot honestly tell you that he he or she could take the prostate cancer out and cure you. So we'll say, well, maybe to do a wide field of radiation, but probably more likely it's the cat's out of the bag and we're dealing with metastatic disease. So in many cases, when the algorithm kind of hits a, 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 a yellow or a red, that we do staging tests to determine the, the, the degree of spread. It used to be a, a CT scan and a bone scan. And you know, $2,000 later, you probably have a pretty good idea. But having said that, is 80% accurate enough for you? I'm probably not for me. Uh, then there's a whole nother set. Sometimes people do MRIs and that does a more accurate job of determining where the spread is. There's a new PET scan called PSMA. And, and basically it's a fancy schmancy nuclear medicine test that is more like in the neighborhood of 90 to 95% accurate in terms of the spread. So that when people have a that high risk or a very high risk, that they would go through a stratification to figure out how extensive the cancer is. And a urologist doesn't takes prostate cancer out if the cat's out of the bag. And so once you leave the arena of localized prostate cancer, then you become widespread metastatic. And then, then it's really a game changer in terms of how you approach that. I'm going to ask a, the usual round of questions that come up in these things which is this is largely genetic, but I can probably, and you'll, you'll tell me, I think the usual suspects, smoking, poor diet, lack of exercise. So those things uh, have 
an impact on this cancer like they have on most of the other cancers that we've talked about? Yeah. From my experience, I've seen being African-American, they have a much higher risk of of prostate cancer, both of diagnosis and, and dying. So they need to bring their guidelines down about 10 years younger. So we're in age 40 or so, they should start screening. The other risk factor we see uh, is Agent Orange. It just being mm-hmm. at VA hospital, we see lots of the Agent Orange exposure and where there's a causality between Agent Orange exposure and cancer. There may be also some association with BRCA, the BRCA mutation that leads to a higher risk of familial breast cancer as well as uh, prostate cancer in the males uh, with with that mutation. Wait, let me see if I understand that correctly. If I'm in a family and some of the females in my family line uh, have had a significant amount of breast cancer, or even just any breast cancer, I imagine, that I may be at a greater risk for prostate cancer, basically on the same genetic um, yeah, the mutations. same genetic reason. It's uh, they call the BRCA mutation, it's, and we see it very uh, infrequently, one two percent, but it's still out there. Is that something that doctors would ask me in a medical history, or not? Because I've never heard anybody. I've never heard this before. This is brand new to me. So, is that something that you would say to doctors or you know general practitioners? Hey, add this in and ask them if anybody in their family has had breast cancer. Or no? Yes, absolutely. So for any physician who's doing your annual physical or initial consultation, they should be asking you a couple of things. So, you know, the chief complaint is why are you there? History of present illness is one to two paragraphs on what brings you into it. You know, past medical history, surgical history, psychiatric history, if you're a female, OBGYN history medications, allergies to any medications, and then family history. Family history should be always part of this because, you know, it's getting more and more understood these days what things run together. And it's not all having to do with cancer, but this podcast is, so we'll just stick with the cancer part. So let's say there's a person in your family tree with a BRCA mutation. And BR, um, nowadays, if you're in a system like you have in USA and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and Japan, those things are being tested for. Right, but in my family history, my let's say my grandmother died of breast cancer. I have no idea if she had uh, BRC. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, there are criteria for that we'll use to decide. If and and for all the different conditions, there's genetic potential, genetic transmission, generation to generation, and so there's different criteria. So for for breast, if you're talking that, it would be typically if there's a first generation relative, if it was an early onset breast cancer, if it was simultaneous in both sides, you know, if there was multi generations, if there was anybody in the family with, let's say, a uterine cancer. Etc. Then you say, "Hey, you need to get tested for this gene, and the gene would be BRCA1 or BRCA2, and then there's a few other similar, like Lefraumini or Cowden's or whatever. But let's say it's BRCA1, and let's say your mother had it, and then she had ten she children. <laughs> Five of those, right? Five of those children potentially could have that gene, roughly." 
it's usually a coin toss and five not, whether they're male or female. The female ones who got that gene would have sort of a jump start on a set of cancers and the males. But still significant enough to talk to our doctor. On a different about. set of cancers. Right. Pancreatic and prostate specifically. So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that, like I've had the doctor ask me about medical history, but I, I guess for me, it had always been like, you know, was there cancer in your family? But it never would have occurred to me to kind of talk about specific, specifically breast cancer because, and I, and I think maybe a lot of uh, listeners would, would feel the same way. Like, well, I'm, I'm a male. I'll, I'll tell you about, you know, my, my uncle who had stomach cancer and my dad who had prostate cancer in his seventies. And, you know, uh, yeah, there, there were some people who had, who had cancer, my mom or you know, my aunt, but I don't know that. Well, in a way, you know, like there's a bias as, as a male, I just automatically bias to the, the things that I think matter to me. And it, so what you're basically telling me is our listeners who are going in and talking to the doctor and they're giving that medical history or should update their medical history um, to indicate that uh, there's, there's something on the maternal side that could influence uh, their chances for pancreatic and what are we calling it? <laughs> That's yeah. I will add that the, in terms of family history, if somebody has died from cancer at an early age, that would much more likely be related to some hereditary or familial condition than if they're diagnosed in their 70s, 80s, and whatnot. So if you heard you know, someone, Aunt yeah, Betty, died yeah. at age 40 from breast cancer, that sets off some, some red flags in my mind versus Aunt Betty died of, of of breast cancer at age 85. It, it, there's a huge difference. Okay. And the same goes mm -hmm. with really any other cancer, whether it's prostate cancer or lymphoma, that if it's a hereditary condition, they generally present much earlier in their life and would, you know, alarm the, the system that it's more worrisome than just, hey, had too many birthdays and unfortunately it happened. Okay. I, that, that, that's reassuring, actually, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, and, and I think a, a lot of listeners would would agree that there's, it's good to know where I should have alarm because cancer in and of itself is alarming. And so, I remember reporting to my doctor when they asked that. Well, well let me tell you, my grandfather, you know, <laughs> and and they all were elderly at that point in time, so uh, less risk. I, I suppose I should tell them anyway, but I don't right. have to worry and about most it. Pertinent to the subject would be first generation relatives. So, you know, your parents. You could also talk about grandparents, you know, aunts and uncles, cousins, and siblings. You know, those are the, and children, I suppose, but those are all the most relevant. You don't have to get into great great grandpappy uh, <laughs> Michael O'Reardon, because that's getting a little far into the, the distant past to be Good too enough. relevant. All right. So we've got our patient. Patient has prostate cancer. We've categorized whether it's low, medium, high, or very high risk. Even if it's low risk and we've been watching them over 10, 5, 10, 15 years, a lot of those will fall into the, at sooner or later, will fall into the slightly higher risk such that in the end, probably half of all the low risk people get treatment of one kind or another. 
And then we're trying to decide between who gets surgery and who gets radiation. And we've kind of arrived at a lot of the healthier, younger people with a long way to go will typically opt for surgery. And people with serious medical problems or they're already pretty old or whatever might choose to go with radiation. If they go with radiation, three kind of options, external beam, which is just zing, the radiation beams flying right through, IMRT, which is uh, sort of the conformal radiation, which is higher tech and it's, it's more focused right on the prostate alone, or seeds. Wait, what's seeds? And then called? for surgery, oh, okay. It's too bad we don't have a radiation oncologist on the show anymore, but seeds are, you place these little radioactive seeds, and I don't know how they do it, into the prostate. They'll put in a dozen or, or more of these little seeds scattered throughout the prostate, and they will emit radiation just inside the prostate or mostly confined to that prostate. Oh, wait, don't we need Charlie for that as a, as a surgeon? He would go in and put those in or do you have to have a specialized no, Mike, the, doctor the, for that? The radiation oncologist, the same guys that, that do the, the external beam radiotherapy, so that's just standard radiation therapy. Th those are the same guys that put in the brachytherapy seeds. And so they do that in the operating room under anesthesia. And it's a very, it's a very precise, pretty high-tech uh, between ultrasound imaging, MRI imaging, where they kind of map out the prostate and they put those seeds in to essentially apply you know, radiation to the entirety of the prostate, prostate you know, with the intent of not not giving much radiation outside the prostate. That's that's the goal there. But Peter, Charlie, do you have any opinion on using seeds versus the other sort of more standard treatments? I, I think some of the recommendations state that the standard risk, you do well doing anything. You want to do right. external beam radiation. You want to do seeds. You want to do surgery. For some of the higher risk situations, then you're kind of either going surgery or you're going to go external beam radiation. Some of the fancy seeds, brachytherapy are probably a little less effective because they don't address the the perimeter as well as, as external beam radiation, nor do they uh, get a precise measurement of what comes out. The, the, once a surgeon does the prostatectomy, they can sample the area around it, the lymph nodes, the areas of invasion beyond the capsule and so forth. So I, I would say that if you have the lower risk disease, then you have all the options. Once you start to get higher risk, it's either external beam radiation or to do surgery. Charlie, you uh, had talked about um, a prostatectomy earlier too, and I, and I was thinking about it then. Uh, Peter just said it again. Is that the removal of the entire prostate or is there like a partial and you're leaving some function, but removing some functions is the whole thing gone. And then what happens to the body without this particular? Yeah. Organ? So a prostatectomy, we remove the entire prostate. That's the goal of, of the surgery is to remove the entire prostate. There's no, there's no partial removal. And, and part of that is that we don't have diagnosed and localized prostate cancer, you know, within the prostate is not all that great. Um, even from a biopsy standpoint, it's a pretty generalized, you have some prostate cancer. We, we, when we do biopsies, maybe on the left side or the right side, but we can't tell you exactly where in the prostate and, and think the prostate is about the size of the walnut. That's how small it is. 
Um, so it's not a it's not a giant organ. It, where it sits, it sits right between. It sits right where the bladder empties into the urethra. And so when we do surgery, remove the prostate. We are we're essentially removing you know the very kind of end part of the bladder and the first part of the urethra, and then we connect those two back together. But what comes out is the yeah, it's the prostate. There's really no. It's an organ for sexual function. After a guy has a kid out, they they can no longer have kids. Um, they will not ejaculate. They will not have. They will not have. Well, take that back. They you can have an or you can have an orgasm, but you will not have any any semen come out and ejaculate. At I think at this point we've covered most of the treatment options for localized disease. But what happens now? Let's say the disease is far advanced, either locally where it involves all the lymph nodes in the pelvis or it's in, extending into other structures or distantly where, you know, there's a dozen metastases to different bone spots, you know, in the, in the spine or the ribs or the pelvis or into the lungs. What are those treatment options looking like and, and what kind of survival does a person have or quality of life? Well, I think it's important to identify when you cross the line and have metastatic disease, when it's incurable, when you have cancer that's spread outside of the capsule. So it's really critical that we identify when someone's curable, they can go through local therapies to get rid of this and not worry about this. But if it is metastatic, if it is advanced, if it's incurable, we want to know that. And there's a, a fairly strong line between the two. Uh, we do run into some cases where the PSA will increase and you say, hmm, uh, that shouldn't go on unless there's cancer cells somewhere in there. And, and then we discuss this term called microscopic metastatic disease where we know that there's cancer somewhere in the body. We just don't know where it's at. Uh, as I discussed before, that we have better scans, previously a CT scan and a bone scan were considered standard of care, but they're becoming somewhat dated. And there's a PSMA scan and MRI that may give better visualization, much better what we call sensitivity in terms of determining, you know, re really what's going on. But once people transition into the more advanced, then you have the discussion of saying, do we want to treat this, yes or no? Um, for many other cancers, that involves chemotherapy, but for prostate cancer, it generally involves endocrine or hormonal therapy, which in, in a very concise way means blocking testosterone. If we can block testosterone, it will block the growth. And in the old days, men would have their testicles removed. We call that an orchiectomy. Their testosterone level will go down to zero. The cancer would, would starve and go into a state of hibernation. Hibernation could last many months to a few years. We've transitioned to a shot called luprolide or a LHRH agonist that basically tells the pituitary gland to tell the testicles to stop making testosterone, and that's basically replaced it. And that's really been the foundation in terms of what the next step is when, when, when men present with advanced prostate cancer. Uh, the downside is not having testosterone. Uh, if you're at a primary care office or probably at a urologist office, everybody wants testosterone. You want to feel like you're 10 years younger. You want bigger muscle mass. Hey, go on to testosterone. We feel stronger, better, younger. Why not? 
The opposite is when we block testosterone, we make people, we remove their mojo, make them feel quite a bit lower, that just their intensity, their motivation level goes down in addition to having male menopause with hot flashes and, uh, um, and uh, vasomotor instability and so forth. Well, is the, is the corollary of that uh, potentially true that if you're, if you're asking for testosterone supplements or if you're taking testosterone supplements for some reason, it, does that put you at a greater risk potentially for prostate cancer? Because you're 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 overjuiced, Charlie. I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, we haven't. You know, that's that's a that's a hot topic. Um, the evidence hasn't panned out to show that that giving uh, testosterone to guys that have that have low testosterone for one reason or another has led to an increase in testosterone or in prostate cancer. Though we do we do keep a little closer eye on guys that are on testosterone therapy through PSA screening. But it's still being studied, it sounds like, and just. Uh, well, mixed results. The studies so so far have not shown have not shown that it's it's increases uh, the risk. And there's there's different theories out there of why why that might be the case. But yeah, right now I know. But I think it's tricky because the original discovery by Charles Huggins at University of Chicago, which got him a Nobel Prize, was that testosterone that that prostate cancer was in part driven by just testosterone. So if let's say somebody's testosterone is, is low and you're giving them back a normal amount of testosterone, maybe that's safe, but let's say their testosterone is normal for age or normal for them for their age. And then they're just taking extra because it makes them feel better. I don't know. Is that going to increase the risk of cancer? That would be a hard study to perform. If you think about the logistics of doing that study. It's it's yeah. a concern, yeah. I don't think I think I don't think it's been it's been different. I mean, it's, it's a concern for sure. Yeah, pivoting back to the prostate cancer management for advanced disease. Once the cat's out of the bag, uh, we had said, you know, what what exactly happens when the cancer metastasizes? We can say, well, the fingers extend extend beyond the capsule and maybe in the pelvis may drift in the bloodstream to the bones, to the organs. But what does that look like for somebody, for a male who has prostate cancer? Well, the imaging may show that there's some spots in the bones. And over time, as the cancer grows in the bones, it may cause pain. Interestingly enough, it doesn't cause fractures. Many other cancers that get in the bones cause fractures. But in, in men with prostate cancer, it doesn't tend to make the bones brittle or break, but it, it can lead to considerable amount of, of pain if it grows. The other most common area that prostate cancer can go is the lymph nodes, particularly in the lower abdomen and pelvis. And we really don't see direct complications of that other than uh, causing more cachexia and, and growing and just being a parasite on the system, drawing energy uh, from the body. Those tend to be the two most common things. So when someone has advanced prostate cancer, being more lethargic and tired is one of the most common things, losing your energy, decreased activity level, being in bed longer, decreased uh, stamina. Those tend to be common as well as having pain, particularly in the low back and hips. That's kind of where the cancer tends to to drift to. Those are uh, more of the common things. And, and, and that would be a reason why we'd want to treat that with particularly with the endocrine or hormonal therapy by blocking the testosterone. 
you used the term cachexia. What is that? Uh, that means just losing your appetite, losing weight, being frail. Wasting. Um, just being unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, Better okay. term. Sorry. So. Oh, yeah. you sounded cooler. So <laughs> when a person has very advanced prostate cancer and they are, they're going to die from this. How does that go? What is it that happens? Is it metastases to the lungs that do it? Is it the overall burden of disease that wears them down? Is it, I don't think of prostate going metastasizing to the brain, but maybe it does hit the brain. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't go to the brain, but it, it just causes overall uh, cachexia and, and just failure to thrive. People just don't have energy. I, I went to a retirement lecture not too long ago, and they talked about the phases that there's the go-go phase of retirement, there's the slow-go phase of retirement, and there's the no-go phase of retirement. And having older parents, we're kind of, you can see that in elderly people. And with what happens with advanced prostate cancers, you go through those phases a lot quicker. You go from the, the go-go to the slow-go and then to the no-go. It just, it sucks energy from you. Um, you can have pain and, and there's good ways to treat that with radiation, with, with pain medications and so forth. But it's just the wasting and the failure to thrive, the decreased energy. And that it, at some point, it gets to the point where people lose weight and they don't want to eat and they just basically give up. And it's not necessarily that their brain gives up, but their body gives it's up. It's just the burden of disease wears them out and, and, and sort of uh, saps all the energy out of them. Uh, precisely. And, and along the journey, uh, we, we talked about hormonal therapies and we can get much fancier. We've been using Lupron or Luprolide forever. And now there's a whole class of newer anti-testosterone therapy that knocks the testosterone down even lower and, and results in longer remission or periods where the, the cancer uh, stays in hibernation. There's chemotherapy that's an option. And obviously no one wants to use chemo, but you get backed into a wall and, and you got to do something. And chemo does work in many people. And so that's a, that's a, another resource that we can use. There, there's um, some fancy molecular tests where you can take a biopsy and send it for what we call next generation sequencing. And we can see if there's any mutations that would suggest that perhaps a breast cancer drug may work. Every now and then we see that there's a mutation that may indicate that immune therapy that we use for melanoma and lung cancer might work. And I've seen some really dramatic results from that. But having said that, you know, it's only about you know, one out of 25% or 5% of the population that may have that mutation. So there are some, some options for more advanced disease clinical trials and so forth. But the bottom line is that we use hormonal therapy, blocking testosterone is the mainstay. And the more you can block testosterone, generally the better that the, the cancer goes into remission hibernation, the longer that the pe people have remissions. Uh, it is not a, a pleasant situation to be without testosterone with male menopause, but it's something like, hey, you got the choice of dealing with active cancer or not having testosterone. It's a fairly straightforward decision for that. I see. I see. That's, a, that, that's an interesting segue to a question that I had earlier, which was when you have a young man and, and they're presented with the option of, you know, you're going to go through surgery and you may become 
uh, you have these side effects of incontinence and erectile dysfunction, and you'll never have kids again. And so they may say, well, you know what, I'm, I, I want my sex life and I want my, maybe I want to have kids in the, in the next few years, uh, if I have a few years left. Is there, in, in that choice, is there a false choice in that? Like if, if I go untreated because I don't want to give up these aspects of my masculinity, so to speak, is the cancer just going to destroy my prostate and destroy my sex yeah, life it's, anyway? Yeah, it's a bad situation because as the cancer grows unchecked in the prostate, it's going to take out the nerves that innervate the penis and you're not going to have erections. Anymore. I was looking at some data so, yeah. right before this and uh, it was on this exact issue. And yes, at about, if you have surgery, everyone's the same at like 10 years and radiation, it was 12 or some kind of number like that. But both both of these converge after after a time and you're in the same boat. So I guess the man up part of that is you got to deal with your cancer because your family wants you around with a, you know, suck, a functioning sex yeah. life or not. <laughs> it's nice to have that other part, but, you know, they need you for who you are, not, you know, what that part of the, your, your body is. And we're talking that for advanced prostate cancer and people have been down the road, they've been going through a lot of things before they get to the point of having to see a medical oncologist and say, yeah, this is, this is bad. This is a terminal illness. We can slow it down, hopefully let you live longer, but we're not going to be able to stop it completely. All right. Well, I think we should, uh, we should, we should wrap this thing up. I want to thank everybody for participating and thank the audience for listening. And uh, again, this is, so it's cancer. If you have questions, please write, write them to letters at paulbryanroach.com, P-A-U-L-B-R-Y-A-N-R-O-A-C-H.com and send us your thoughts and uh, recommendations for future, future episodes. Mike and Pete and Charlie, thank you all very much for, uh, for joining today.